excited about this. We spent the summer going through a number of them. We've looked at five so far. So we started with Amos. We found the God who judges justly and saves the repentant. And then Alid looked at Hosea, the God who pursues and redeems his people even when they've rejected him. Uh, Steve looked at Zephaniah, the God who clears away our judgments and then rejoices over us, delights over us with singing. We then got uh, uh, Obadiah. We found the God who's faithful to his covenant, to his commitments, and who's willing and able to save. And then today I'm going to finish off by looking at Haggai. We're going to find the God who loves to dwell among his people and who sends the ultimate temple builder. And the observant among you will notice that's a list of six of the minor prophets we've looked at, but there were actually 12 minor prophets in the Bible. So even as we finish this series, I want to encourage you to take up the challenge of reading the other six and wrestling with them yourselves. You might think, actually, you need a bit of help to kind of understand what's going on. So you might want to get hold of a study Bible. A study Bible will give you an introduction to the book and just some brief notes on each verse, kind of explaining a bit for you. The ESV study Bible is a really good option. If you want the cheap version, get the student version. It's basically the same. It's a lot cheaper. Or uh, the NIV have a relatively new study Bible edited by D.A. Carson, which is meant to be really good as well. Or you might think, actually, I want to delve even deeper into one of these books. And that's when a Bible commentary can be really helpful. So it does a similar thing, an introduction and notes explaining what's going on, but in a bit more detail. And for the minor prophets, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, it's purple books. Uh, it's pretty good, actually. Each is kind of, I think, four volumes that covers the minor prophets. They'd be really good resources if you think, oh, I want to wrestle one of these books and glean from it all that I can learn about God. But today we're going to go for Haggai, and Haggai answers a key question. He answers the question, what does God want? What does God long for? And I wonder what you would have in your head as the answer to that question. And it may be a question you haven't really thought of before. It's not, I think, a common question for us to ask. But I think it's a very legitimate and very good question for us to ask. Importantly, the question is, what does God want, not just what, good, what does God need? Okay, God has no needs. He is needful of nothing outside of himself. He's a self-sufficient being. If he wasn't, then he wouldn't be God. Part of the definition of what it means to be God is to have no needs outside of himself. But that doesn't mean that God can't long, want things and long for things and desire things. And Haggai reminds us of one of God's deepest desires, as revealed in the Bible, his deep desire to dwell with his people in intimate relationship with us. The fact that we're not created to be slaves or to be far off from God, but we're created to be close to God and in relationship with him. And Haggai reveals to us God's desire for that and also points forward to the way that God has made that a reality and a, a possibility for us. So with Haggai, we reach the next part of the Bible story. We know these prophets we've been looking at are messengers from God, mouthpieces of God, bringing his words to the people over a period of time, kind of at the end of the Old Testament period. We've got the timeline we've been using, which will help us a bit here as well. We looked at some of the early prophets, Amos and Hosea, Zephaniah and Habakkuk would also fit in here. We call pre-exilic prophets, they're before the exile. And they're basically saying, guys, you need to change how you're living. Because you've made this covenant, this agreement with God, and the agreement said you need to keep God's law to get God's blessing, but right now you're not keeping God's law, so you're going to get curses, not blessings. There's a warning which is designed to encourage them to change, but actually they don't change, and so Israel falls to the Assyrians, then Judah falls to the Babylonians. We enter what's called the exile, because the people are exiled, taken out of their land. And so we looked at some of the prophets who are exilic, who speak in that time. Obadiah was the key example we looked at. Uh, people like Jeremiah and the major prophets would be other examples of exilic prophets. But if you read the story on, the exile actually doesn't last very long. It only lasts about 70 years. 
because the Babylonians had invaded Judah. But then only about 70 years later, the Persians, another empire, they overthrew the Babylonians, which, by the way, is exactly what Habakkuk said would happen. Remember in Habakkuk, God says, don't worry, the Babylonians will come and invade Judah. And Habakkuk goes, no, that's terrible. And God says, but don't worry, because judgment will come to the Babylonians. Well, this 70 years later is exactly what happened. And when the Persians took over, and they're kind of the top dog in the area, they're the big empire, they had a very different strategy to the Babylonians. Babylonians, when they invaded a place, they destroyed everything, they enslaved people, they carted them off into exile. They basically sought to force people into submission. The Persians are very different. They kind of came to woo people into submission. So they tried to be really nice to people so they would like them in the hope they might be obedient to them. That meant they let exiled peoples go back to their lands. They let them rebuild their cities and their temples and start worshipping their gods again. And we know that's a historical fact. So I've got a picture here of something called the Cyrus Cylinder. You can go up to the British Museum in London and see this. This is a, a document written in cuneiform, I think. And this is where the Emperor um, Cyrus announced to the world that exiles could go back to their lands. He said, you can go back to the places you came from. You can build your temples. You can worship your gods, which is exactly what the Bible tells us happened. This is a historical artifact which said exactly what the Bible says was going on at this time. And so about 539 BC, Cyrus allowed some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And they built an altar, and they began to rebuild the temple. The temple was the most important building in the city. It was the place where God lived with his people, the very house of God with his people. But quite soon, they faced some opposition from various people, and they basically gave up doing the work. You read about this in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 4. And so just a few years later, 536, they've given up building the temple. And the prophet Haggai appears about 16 years later. So the people have been busy doing everything, but God's temple is still sitting in ruins. And in 520, Haggai appears and brings a challenge to them to start rebuilding the temple. And very excitingly, the first message that Haggai brings, the first one we'll read now, was brought on the 29th of August, 520 BC, which means that Thursday, Jeskom, was the 2539th anniversary of this first message, which you can ask my colleagues absolutely made my week. And what he says, he calls them to rebuild the temple. And what you find in Haggai is kind of a prophetic narrative. There's both story and these prophetic messages weaved together. So we see how what Haggai was saying actually worked out. And he starts by bringing a challenge to the people on Thursday all those years ago. Let's read what he says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God speaks uh, through Haggai to two important people. They're the leaders of this people back in Jerusalem at the time, to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest. And he's bringing to them a challenge, really, an accusation almost, challenging them to do something 
Because they turned up in 539, they started rebuilding, but then when it got difficult, they gave up. And in the meantime, they've been building their own houses, making sure they've got what they want, nice, finished, beautiful houses, but God's house down the road is still in absolute ruins. He challenges them, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, lies in ruins? They focus on all their own needs, and they have not at all thought about what does God want? Actually, what about God's house? And so in a sense, at this point, God is homeless. He doesn't have a place among this new restored community of God to actually live among them because they focus on themselves rather than focusing on him. And I think the question that's really interesting to ask at this point is why does God care? In a sense, why does God want a house that he can live in amongst them? Because God is everywhere. Why does he want them to build this special place? It's kind of striking to think, actually, what was the purpose of that? What was God's heart behind that? And actually, what God is doing is he's revealing afresh his deep desire to dwell with his people. God is everywhere, and yet he longs to dwell close in intimate relationship with his people. And actually, if you look through the Bible, that's always been God's desire. That's actually why God created us as humans. You see it right at the start in the Garden of Eden. You know, we've got God and Adam and Eve in perfect, beautiful relationship living together in the garden. That all goes wrong, but when God starts his mission to restore it all, you find the call to Abraham. And one of the promises from God is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's about intimate relationship, God dwelling with his people. When God rescues the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, they start and they build the tabernacle, a tent, basically, that God could live with them among the camp where they were living in the wilderness because he longs to be with his people. And when they establish themselves in Jerusalem, Solomon, the son of David, builds the temple, the first temple where God would actually dwell among his people. God's deepest desire is to live with his people in, in intimate relationship with them. And when you stop and think about that, That is an astounding request. The God of heaven and earth, the God who made everything, who rules over everything, who sustains everything, wants to dwell with you and I. It's an astounding thing. It it shows us that God didn't create us as slaves to command or as pets to play with or as distant relatives to occasionally visit. He created us to be family he would live with and he would lavish his love upon. It's astounding just because of who God is, but It's then even more astounding when you think of who we are and what we're like. God wants this temple built so he can live with the people, even though the very destruction of the temple was the people's fault. The temple was destroyed because they failed to live God's way. It was an act of judgment by God to the people. It wasn't out of his control. God didn't look and watch the destruction of the temple and go, oh dear, the Babylonians have scuppered my plan. Actually, it was his act in judgment of the people's sin. And yet even though they caused the problem, even though they rejected him, they made him homeless, his deep desire is to come and live with them. It's astounding, and the same is still true for us. God has made us because he longs for a relationship with us, longs to live in intimate relationship with us, and that's still true even though every one of us starts our life by rejecting him and turning away from him. So that is God's desire, and therefore God calls the people to act, which we'll pick up in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you has withheld the dew. 
and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God comes and he calls them back to action. He says, go and get the materials. Go and get the wood you're going to need. Start rebuilding. Start the job and finish the job that you started all those years ago. And as she points out to them, at this very time, they're experiencing a drought. There's no dew. There's no rain. The ground isn't producing the crops that they need to live off. And actually, he says, that is because they're failing to do what they should do in building God's house. He's pointing out they're experiencing the curses that were promised in the covenant. The covenant between God and Israel said, if you keep my law, you get my blessings. If you don't keep the law, you get the curses. Part of the curses was drought and famine. He said, actually, this is happening because you're living in disobedience by not building this temple. He brings the challenge, and it works. You read on, you find the people listen. Verses 12 to 15, we find that on the 24th of that month, they start work again. They pick up their tools. They get going again. We're told God stirred the spirits of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and of the people. God did something in people's hearts, so they thought, yeah, we need to go and we need to do this. And so it seems like really good news. God has spoken. The people have listened. They're starting to rebuild. God's going to have a house with the people again. It's all going really well. But then you find there's something that's still not quite right. You find there's a, a problem. And so one month later, Haggai brings another message to the people. Talk about this problem and this disappointment they're feeling with what's actually happening. We're now to chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, so about a month later, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's talking to people who would have been children uh, and teenagers when the Babylonians first invaded and destroyed the temple. People who, those 70 years earlier, were there. They remember this temple of Solomon, this amazing, wonderful, beautiful building. And he's saying, look now at the foundations, the start of this work, and how does it match up to what Solomon built? He says, it's just as nothing in your eyes. It just doesn't really compare. This temple was actually probably the same size as the first temple, so this probably speaks of the beauty of it, the craftsmanship being used. But the same thing is said in Ezra, the narrative of this period. Ezra 3 tells us that when the foundations are laid, many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. This is a peculiar scene because some are really excited. Yes, the house of God has been built again. But those who saw the original house of God are like, but yeah, but it just doesn't compare. And actually, the earlier prophets have promised an even better temple, and this definitely wasn't it. There's actually incredible disappointment, even as the temple starts to be rebuilt, even as the people are listening to what God says and acting on his word. But into the midst of real disappointment, God comes and brings reassurance. He comes and brings uh, comfort and encouragement in the verses that follow. Let's pick it up from verse 3 again. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. 
work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. How can they fear not? Well, because of the promise. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In the face of that disappointment, as they see the foundation, foundations laid, God brings the encouragement, be strong, keep working, don't fear. And the reason is because he knows he will act. He is going to do something. He's going to do something dramatic. It'll be a dramatic act of power. The heavens and earth, the sea, the dry land, they will shake as God acts. Even the nations will be shaken. And as they're shaken, their treasures come in and their treasures fill the temple. Their treasures fund the rebuilding of this temple. And actually, this is going to be such a, a radical thing, a radical turnaround, that when time goes on, this temple will be even better than the Temple of Solomon. The temple they're currently crying over will be even better than the one they're remembering and kind of wistfully thinking of. Its glory will outstrip the glory of the Temple of Solomon. And we reach a bit like this in the prophets, where they're asking the question, well, what is this referring to? When, what, who, where, how? And probably what's going on here is something that sometimes happens in the prophets, that you have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Often the prophets, usually prophets are speaking into their time, into their day, but sometimes beyond that, there's also a, a deeper meaning, a further fulfillment. Because in a sense, this happened at around this time. When we read the story in Ezra, we find that the building of the temple was funded from the Persian treasury. The Persian empire paid for this temple to be built. The treasures of the nations came in to build the temple, just as uh, God said through Haggai. And actually, as the centuries go on, this temple is developed and grown. And particularly just before Jesus uh, is born, the temple is greatly expanded. It becomes one of the kind of architectural wonders of that period of the ancient world, a huge, vast, beautiful complex. It does become far more impressive than the Temple of Solomon. In a sense, there's a, a short-term fulfillment in that. But actually, that doesn't last, because not long after all that building work, in 70 AD, so just after the time of Jesus, that temple was completely destroyed. The Romans invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple almost completely, and so this promise comes kind of crashing down. This latter glory of the temple is no longer there at all, which suggests the promise was actually pointing beyond that. It was looking beyond, it was thinking of something bigger, something greater, something that would come afterwards. And it's in thinking about that and asking those questions that we begin to find the gospel in Haggai. And for that, we have to go to the end of the book. What is actually pointing towards and how is it actually going to happen? When the very final oracle of the book, verses 20 to 23 of chapter 2, we begin to get hints of how God is going to fulfill that promise. What's actually going to happen? How this latter glory will be better than the former glory? Let's just read what God says. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. 
and the horses and their riders should go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. When you read that promise, you're meant to hear echoes from the earlier promise. You do notice they both talk about shaking. We had earlier the shaking of the dry land and the sea and the heavens and the earth. Here we have the shakings of the earth. And we had there the shaking of the nations. Well, here again, the nations are shaken, but even more than that, they're overthrown. And we're meant to hear allusions back to the Exodus and the great act of deliverance and salvation in the Old Testament. God's basically saying he's going to come again. He's going to act again in a mighty, earth-shaking way, which brings deliverance, brings salvation to his people. And then he addresses this guy, Zerubbabel, directly. And Zerubbabel is not actually a very well-known biblical character, maybe, but he's hugely, hugely important. And the words that are said here to him actually are are pivotal in the the Bible story. It's told from beginning to end. And we need to know a little bit more about him to realize why this is so very important. So Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was the guy who was the king of Judah when the Babylonians came and invaded and took them off into exile 70 years before. So he was the last king in the line of David ruling in Jerusalem. And the Babylonians carted him off to Babylon. They imprisoned him for 37 years or so. And he was basically a really bad king. He didn't keep God's law. He led the people astray. And that's why judgment comes upon the people in his reign. So much so that in another of the prophets, a little bit before Haggai, Jeremiah in chapter 22, God there pronounces judgment on Jehoiakim. He says that his offspring, his kids, they won't sit on the throne of David. They're not going to be the kings in Jerusalem. And basically, God kind of says the royal line stops with him. It's kind of cut off and stopped. And in a sense, we see that in Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was his grandson, the, the rightful kind of heir to the throne. And he actually, he's not the king. He's the governor. When they went back to Jerusalem, the monarchy wasn't restored. There was no king in Jerusalem for many, many centuries. God's cut off that kingly line, but that's kind of a problem. Because that line was the line of David. And to King David, God had made really important, really incredible promises. God had promised David that one of his descendants would build God's house and would rule over a kingdom that had no end. Here's what God said to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, and you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's line, they're meant to be the kings and the temple builders. And God's promised that somewhere in this family tree will come someone who will build the ultimate house for God, and he'll start to rule, and his rule will never, ever end. But when God speaks these words against Jehoiakim, it's like that's all being cut off. It's all being stopped. All that hope is lost. It feels like a backward step rather than a forward step. This line is no longer the line of kings and the line of temple builders. But then 70 years later, Zerubbabel, the grandson, enters the land. And we're meant to go, ooh, maybe he's the one promised to David. And then Zerubbabel starts building a house for God. We're meant to go, ooh, Maybe he's the one who was promised to David. And then Haggai brings this little phrase at the end of the book to Zerubbabel, which is meant to make us go, oh, 
maybe he's the promised king. God says to Zerubbabel, he says, I will make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you. A signet ring was a ring the king would have worn, which would have had a kind of stamp, and you'd use it to stamp documents. And it was a way of saying, this has the king's authority, the king's seal on it. It's a sign of royal power. In the way we today would talk about the crown or about the throne, here they talk about the signet ring of God's or of the king's authority. Now, what's really important is when God brought judgment against Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22, he talked about Jehoiakim as a signet ring. But there, he's a signet ring who gets thrown away. God says, as I live through Kenia, that's Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. So Jehoiakim, he's a signet ring, he's the royal, and he gets torn off, thrown away. But then Zerubbabel comes. Zerubbabel is the signet ring put back on. You see, the line that was cut off, God is restarting it. He's putting Zerubbabel back in that. The promise is re-established. He is coming again as a royal temple builder. Haggai is using the exact same concept to show us where it seemed like the promise had been cut off. God is now restoring his promise. He's picking it up again with Zerubbabel. And so you're meant to get to the end of Haggai and be asking the question, is Zerubbabel the one? Is he the king who will rule forever? Is he the great house for God builder? Will he build the temple? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And actually, you don't get the answer in the book. You've got to follow the story through, see what happens. Is he the one? Is it what we've been waiting for? Will he bring the deliverance? You read it through, and where is it? And no, he's not. Zerubbabel isn't the one. He never becomes king. He never rules in that way. We actually don't know what happens to him. He actually disappears out of the historical record not long afterwards. And so we're reading the story waiting, when will the temple builder come? When will the king come? When will that signet ring once again carry that authority? And we wait and wait and wait. And then 500 years later, we meet a new descendant of David, a descendant of Zerubbabel, one who, when he's on the earth, a couple of times the earth shakes, one who, when he's born, the treasures of the nations come to him, brought by three wise men. Jesus comes as the greater and the better Zerubbabel. He comes as the king and the ultimate temple builder. And in Jesus, God supremely enacts his deep, deep, deep desire to live with his people because Jesus is the ultimate temple builder. And actually, when Jesus is on the earth, he is the temple. He is the place where God dwells with his people. You see that in several places, but a key example is in John's Gospel. Right at the start in chapter 2, you get the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. So when he gets really worked up about the people, money changing and selling stuff and turns over their tables. And then Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the people hearing it think, this guy's crazy. It's taking his decades to get this amazing building. Is How is he going to do it in three days? But John explains, almost in brackets, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus on earth is the temple. He's the dwelling place of God with his people. And of course, when Jesus is born, the wise men come, non-Jews come, bringing treasures. The treasures of the nations are brought to this temple, just as Haggai had said. And when Jesus dies, and when Jesus is raised from the dead, there are earthquakes. The earth shakes at the coming of this king, just as Haggai had said. But Jesus isn't only the temple, he's also the great temple builder. 
You see, when he ascended to be with God the Father, the Bible tells us that God the Father handed over the Holy Spirit to God the Son. And now God the Son, Jesus, he pours out God the Holy Spirit into us. Into any person who trusts in Jesus, who responds to repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. So we become the temple of God. We become the place where God dwells with his people. So we see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we corporately, as the church, we are the temple of God. He says, do you, plural, not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you. We as a church, God's spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of God. Then in chapter 6, he talks to us as individuals. We as individuals are also the temple of God where he dwells. Do you, singular, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Jesus is the son of David who builds a house for God, and we become those houses. God's great, great, deep desire was to dwell in intimate relationship with his people. And through his son, the king and the temple builder, he now does that. And so for anyone who turns to Jesus in repentance and in faith, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within, and we get to be where God dwells. The God who longs to dwell with his people has made a way so that he can dwell with his people. And in this part of God's story, we get to be the temples whose glory is greater than the glory of the temple of Solomon. We, at this stage in the story, are the fulfillment of the promise given by God through Haggai. Maybe the band can come back up at this point, please. So the fitting response to this for us is to come firstly to God in worship. To stand astounded and awe and wonder the fact that the God who made everything wants to dwell with us. But that even more than that then, the God who made everything whom we rejected has made a way for him to dwell with us even though we turned our backs on him. It's a moment for us to stand in awe and wonder to reflect again on the glory of the gospel. The glory of the God revealed by the gospel and to worship him for that. But it's also a fitting response for us to invite God to once again come and dwell within us. You know, if you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That, biblically speaking, is the definition of a Christian, someone who the Holy Spirit lives within. But we're also told to keep on being filled with the Spirit. We need to actively pursue this relationship with him, actively ask him to come and dwell in us, refreshing new measures. And, you know, God longs to dwell in us, and so he loves it when we express to him our longing for him to dwell in us. And so we're going to do that as well. And so we're going to come before God and say, oh, God, would you come fill us again? Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Will you come make your dwelling place in us again? Should we stand? The guys will lead us in just a moment as we worship, as we cry out to God. But I'd love to just to pray, to uh, draw this together, to draw our hearts to God and to express our cry to him.